0: Thank you for being here. Would you mind introducing
1: yourself? I'd love to. My name is James Foreman Jr., and I teach at EL Law School.
0: You have a fascinating life, or at least it appears to be from my <laughs> point of view. And um, I've always imagined either growing up during the civil rights movement or being raised by someone who was involved in it. Right. How has um, your parents like what was that experience like of having the father that you have?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I have to be real about it. There was a lot that was hard because um, my dad traveled all the time, and no, we didn't have any money. Uh, and because he was, you know, pretty radical, so it was pretty grassroots kind of operation. And also, we were surveilled by the FBI as part of the COINTELPRO program, and. That was not just surveillance. That was also destabilization. It was a program where the FBI worked to break up organizations and to break up marriages and would do things like forge letters to people that were supposedly, oh, somebody's having an affair with somebody. And these were all written by FBI agents or FBI informants. And it's an incredible thing to think about now. It's another piece of history that we haven't grappled with. I was talking earlier yeah. um, today in my remarks about not grappling with history, and that's a, that, that's a piece that, that we haven't um, grappled with, let alone atoned for or repaired. So those things were all hard, very hard. And at the same time, there was, um, I would never trade it for another childhood because even though the pressure on my parents was so great that they ended up splitting up when I was seven, but my father and mother both remained very involved in my life and they remained very kind to one another. What I got to see was I got to see firsthand how individual people working in community with allies can transform the nation and do things that everybody said was impossible and do things that um, folks said would never happen. And so that was inspiring because it's created an attitude in me that, well, like, let's do this. Like if I want to do something, you know, the same, I think, attitude that you described for yourself where you say I came into this foundation and I want to start take, I wanted to start, taking issues of racial equity and criminal justice reform seriously. You know, a lot of people don't have that mindset. A lot of people don't think they have the power to make that change. And so one of the things about growing up where I grew up is I always knew I had that capacity and I had that power.
0: Really interesting. So your your mother's white? Yes. And your father's black? Yes. And we have this tremendous period of time, an extension of, of what has happened in the past where we um, talk about allyship, and we talk about what does it mean to have cross-cultural conversations. And you'll never understand what it's like to be African American in this country, um, so don't so don't even even try it. And so here you've got these two fantastic people working for the cause of justice that raised you. How did how did that play out in terms of you know you use the word ally, and, and I imagine that there were probably perspectives on both sides that really created, I imagine, a fantastic balance for you.
1: I think that's right. I mean, I'm grateful to my mother for so many things, but one of the things that I'm most grateful to her for is that she knew that she was going to raise us as Black children. That's how we were... That's just what my parents, it was never even the whole biracial, like that's not even a term. I think I learned that heard that term in college. And so that was just how they did it. And my mom also thought it was important to, as black children, so remember I told you they divorced when I was seven. So now imagine this. We're living in New York City, just because that's the last place they had lived. And um, I had got accepted to one of these elite like uh, high schools. It was a seven through 12 school, a public school, but you had to like take tests, get into it, et cetera. And my mom was appalled after the first month, actually before even the beginning of school because she got a reading list from the school and it was all white authors for the English reading list. And she went up to school to complain. And the head of the English department had the nerve to tell her, well, can you make any suggestions? And my mom says, I'm a nurse. I'm an emergency room nurse. I am not the head of the English department. So it's not my job to give you suggestions. She was like, but it is not hard. This is mid-1970s, right? There's well-established canon of African-American great writers upon which you can draw. And but But that was just the whole vibe of the school and my mom looked at her life at that point and looked at our life, and I think she got kind of nervous because she was worried that we would go, that my brother might follow in my tracks, and that we might end up in these schools that were on paper, great, but actually not good for our identity. And my mom did something completely radical, which is she moved to Atlanta. Hmm. She just up and moved us to Atlanta where she had lived in the movement, so she knew people there.
0: Sure,
1: But and she was she didn't tell us then why we were moving but later she was very very explicit she said i wanted y'all to grow up in a city where you saw black leadership every day i wanted you to look at the local newspaper when it arrived on our doorstep in the morning and to see black people making decisions i wanted you to be in that environment and i especially wanted that as a white woman raising black children and so that was just like my mom was very advanced in her thinking. Uh, and so I just think she did a lot for us to make what could be a difficult situation. Cause then when I got to college and I met kids and they were kind of messed up, right? Some of them had parents that raised them to say that race doesn't matter, you know, and race isn't important. And then they get, then they're exposed to racism
0: Yeah, and they don't have
1: the the, the tools to deal with it Mm -hmm. so we never had that problem
0: yeah what's brilliant about this story is your mother and what's sad about it is um, I have a son who is uh, 24 Mm -hmm. when he was about in 4th grade I had this same experience in a public school and um, all white reading list all white poets Um, I addressed it and they asked if I could send them a list
1: no they did not
0: Yes, of authors of color right and so now we got Google
1: <laughs>
0: right. So you don't even have to go to the library to figure it out. Um but you know what I did? I googled and huh. I gave them that list. Um and I think the other thing that um that story um shares is that you know, in the education conversation mm. we're constantly um trying to identify what quality schools are. Mm. And we look at indicators. Yes like academic rigor as the qualifier. And you just really very well expressed how that played out in your life where that is not the only indication and that being in a system that is academically um, rigorous but damages your identity is in fact not a great school.
1: Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And I mean, one of the things that I loved about going to school in Atlanta is that because the school was overwhelmingly African American uh, the teachers were somewhat more mixed although I'd say probably majority black Um, they like when a teacher walked into the classroom on the first day they knew that the smartest kid in class was going to be black because we all were right and it also meant that growing up as a kid growing up in a community like that there wasn't there wasn't like a, a sign specific way that you were supposed to act if you were black. Like, right, like every, like the the nerds were black, the band kids were black, the, the jocks. Dr- jocks, the yeah. thugs, like everybody was, and so it meant you had, like you didn't have your, your identity wasn't, like you didn't feel pressure, on as much pressure. Obviously there's cultural signifiers and it's always, mm-hmm better to be cool than to be nerdy you know that's the reality anywhere but 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 still it felt pretty free um in terms of how you could be and it just wasn't there wasn't a racial designation to how you acted in the world sure
0: do you think that your experience growing up and knowing how the fbi and Mm -hmm. police departments conspired Mm -hmm. um really around people that were fighting for justice and rights? for us Black Americans Mm. and others um, that live in our communities to live more holistically um, in relationship with each other. Do you think that there is a a connection between you seeing how that played out and now you're working criminal justice?
1: That's interesting. I never thought about that question before. Um, I think that there must be, even if I've never been conscious of it, um, in the sense that I never was under any illusion. Like I didn't have to go through a period of believing, of like learning to be skeptical of the motives of law enforcement or of government or making the assumption that people were acting on valid public safety grounds, right? I think a lot of people have to kind of work through that. Um, And for me, it was obvious and evident from my childhood that government did, made decisions about who it was going to surveil and wasn't going to surveil that had nothing to do with public safety, even if it was touted in the name of government safety. Um, and, um, and that doesn't mean, to be clear, I don't think that everybody who's working, I think most people working in those systems are good people, but the systems themselves um, are structured in such a way as to produce these outcomes and make it very hard for, um, it's, it's very hard to, it's so easy to lose sight of what actually would be good. You know, you go into one of these jobs and you get trained up in a particular way and you get told to do particular things. And after a few years, it's just what you do. Um, And most people don't, as we were talking about before, most people don't sit down and step back and ask hard questions about how they're living their lives and assume that they have the power to create any kind of change. And so people just go through and go through and go through. I mean, all the time I get emails from people from law enforcement and others, people say, I was a sheriff for 25, 30 years. You know, I read your book and I'm really starting to ask questions about my career. And I got an email like that last week. Uh, from a, From a sheriff in, 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 in rural Michigan, mm.
0: The um, questioning one's career is really interesting in, in, um, in the times that we're in, and we're seeing it come up and it's come up in past elections relative to the Clintons mm. um, and the Bushes and others that um, push policy that we say have led that has led to mass incarceration. And we have a narrative around that, around the race construct around it, around who participated in that and for what reasons. And your book really talks about mayors and, and how mm-hmm. communities of color um partnered in those efforts. Um and for most cases, really good reasons around it, because we were having the crack academic, mm-hmm. you know, communities were just unsafe. And so we we made decisions at that point. Do you think that we're reconciling with those decisions at this point?
1: Yes. Yes and no, right? It's always to an extent. I mean, when I look at, you know, a lot of what I write about and take as my source material is from Washington, D.C. and majority Black City Council. Right now, Washington, D.C. City Council has become almost like a laboratory of reform, I mean, they are doing a lot of interesting and aggressive things um, in terms of trying to cut back on some of the choices that were made in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the pieces of legislation that recently passed that I think is can be a model for the country um, is uh, second chance legislation, which says that anybody who is serving a sentence of a longer than a particular period of time, 15 or 20 years, is eligible after a certain number of years to go back before the original sentencing judge and file a motion for a new sentence that will be based on how they've lived their life since they've been in prison and what's so powerful about that is that a lot of those very long sentences were handed down in this earlier era when people were incredibly scared and 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 i don't think could even see really uh some of the damage that they were doing and now um Uh, a lot of the judges are getting some of those motions and they are some they're being granted you know first when i first heard about this people said oh we'll we'll make a difference because the judge gave the sentence they're not going to produce the sentence why would they do that they gave it but it turns out that when presented with evidence of all the classes that somebody took and the role that they play in the prison to try to mentor and tutor other Mm -hmm. um, men or women who are incarcerated um, plus the passage of time and and plus the research on adolescent brain development, you know, a lot of these things weren't available when the initial sentence was imposed. And so so I, I see I see that happening. You know, I also see places where, you know, the, the district attorney in Los Angeles, you know, Jackie Lacey is one of the most African-American women. And she's she's like could have been back in the book, you know, um, and So it's both. I think that there are, uh, but I think the hardest thing, honestly, is for the people that were already in the position of authority to, like DC Council, there's been a lot of change of personnel. So it's easier for the new people to come in and say, let's take a different tack. What's harder is for a DA or a judge or somebody who was doing it in the 80s and 90s to even see the error of their ways? Cause none of us really wants to mm-hmm. confront or admit error in that way, especially not somebody who's meeting out what's supposed to be justice, right? Because right. what does that say about like how many bodies are in prison for how many years that shouldn't have been there on
0: your, you know, Watch. your signature? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the difference between in- intention and impact Yes, Um, it feels like this is um, playing out. We talked earlier. I think there's a couple of things that I would like to talk about. This this idea of um, working on um, bail reforms and we all have an image of who's in jail um, and they're usually pretty scary and they're beating people up and they're sexually assaulting people, they're murdering people. They're doing these egregious things in community. And, um, you know, you shared that, uh, you know, the details matter and how we identify who's a felon. And I think the felony charge, like as we move forward on bail reform, that's the number one question I get, is you certainly, you're just talking about misdemeanors and you're not talking about felons. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the classification of felony?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's two things that get lost when we use a label like that. Um, One thing is the specifics of what happened. And the other things is the specifics of the person who yeah. is charged with doing it, right? And both of those get lost by the label. So a lot of people, when you, they hear felon, it's like that when they hear violent, they immediately assume like rape and murder. Mm-hmm. And they don't understand that those are not, those are less than 10%, not just of all the charges, but of all the felonies that would be charged in a particular jurisdiction, that a lot of cases that are charged as felonies are, could be a theft of, if somebody walks in this room right now and takes my backpack, I don't know Minnesota law, but in most states, and I bet here, that's a felony because there's something of value. My laptop is in here. And so it's a value. It's a more than $300 worth, and that's a felony. If somebody, I had a client who broke into a building it was basically a, a it was an unoccupied um uh uh like auto plant kind of not uh, uh air conditioning plant okay. to sleep that's a felony because he was break. he was breaking and entering at nighttime um so uh you could have um four kids in a car with a gun all of them get arrested, and the prosecutor's practice is to charge everybody with possession of that gun, and that's a fel, not just a felony. For that's a, considered in most places a violent felony. It might be something that triggers, depending on the jurisdiction, mandatory minimum. So you might be in the back left seat; it's under the passenger seat in the right. You don't even know the gun is there, but you're charged with possession of that gun. And again, these are all people who are. Presumed innocent, they haven't. They haven't had a chance to tell their story. Right. So they're, but they're held. They're locked up just on the basis of the charge. So that's the charge. But then you also have, what do we know about who's being charged? I mean, my client, who was trying to sleep uh, in that air conditioning plant, was homeless and was suffering from mental illness, and now receiving treatment. That's not unusual, right? And so uh, in most cities in this country, the largest, largest provider of mental health treatment is the local jail. The largest provider of mental health treatment in the country is Rikers Island Jail in New York. And the second largest is the Los Angeles County Jail. And the third largest is the Cook County Jail in Chicago. And so what's happening is that all of these frayed or non-existent safety nets net out in the criminal justice system and they net out in jail. And so you have somebody. So when I say say you're not talking about felonies, I want to say, well, what I am talking about is the guy that broke into the abandoned plant to, to find a place to sleep. And we suffering from addiction and mental health treatment and couldn't get services because the waiting list was too long. Mm -hmm. But they were cold. I'm talking about them.
0: Yeah.
1: How do we feel about that? And that's the thing. Once we start to tell some of these individual stories, I think we can move beyond the label and move beyond the scare, move beyond the fear. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right when you, um, it feels to me like there's a movement around criminal justice reforms or people understanding more around mass incarceration. And I've learned even today from you is that that's a newer term, or actually maybe even in the book, um, a newer term or um, nonviolent drug offenses, right? These are things that I just assumed were always around and kind of the common um, understanding of, 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 um, of the criminal justice system. Um, so my question is, um, it feels like there's, um, growing movement and I think some of that may be to the visibility of, of some of the stories, similar stories like you just shared. And, um, in a few of my conversations, I talk about Khalif Browder and I just feel very obligated, um, to that young man to just tell his story wherever I can, right? In jail, three years, Rikers, for stealing a backpack. And, um, the visibility of that story and I think celebrities getting involved, do you think that those are some of the um the reasons why it feels like there's a growing sort of effort and movement around reforming these systems or you know can you can you share from your point of view what you think is happening right now across the country relative to this issue?
1: Absolutely. I mean, when I first started working on this when I was became a public defender in the 90s there was no, I mean, the bipartisan consensus existed, but it was in the other direction. It was a consensus to lock up more people for longer in worse conditions. Mm-hmm. I was, I started at the public defender's office um, more or less the same month that the crime 94 crime bill passed. Um, so that's how I, that's the era in which I began, which is why when I walk into a room like this and I see that um, the foundation has been able to convene. 200 people or more all to talk about this one issue you know a bail reform I just I can't even believe it there would have been I mean when I mean there would have been nobody in the room it would have been whoever convened the meeting would have they, they would have been there by themselves and so I think that's a sign of one crime has gone down for basically 15 years straight in this country. And the result of that is that there's a little bit more openness to thinking about over-incarceration as a problem. You know, in DC, crime is as low as it was since the early 1960s. And, you know, Leave it to Beaver was on television. And that's a show that I've never even, you know, had heard of, but then somebody showed me this show with like this like, you know, family and suburban the cleavers, and, the suburban, <laughs> the cleavers and, and that was America that was being portrayed at the time. And so the idea that our crime rates would be like that at a time when, you know, people don't think of as a as a violent time in this country and it wasn't, I think is is a sign. So the other thing um, that I think has happened is an advocacy movement has grown up um, from from the bottom, and these are activists and advocates, nonprofit organizations. One of the things that I think one of the reasons why building a robust nonprofit infrastructure, I think, is both so important to creating the moment that we're in now, as well as propelling it further. You know, Patrick Patrick Sharkey, who's a sociologist, has done uh, this terrific research, and he has found that um, you can actually measure by the increased number of nonprofit organizations in a particular community, that for every 10 um, that arrive or increase in number, you can measure the crime reduction which they've caused. And so it's a direct correlation that as you build up this capacity, you drive crime down. And the other thing that you build up when you build up that capacity is you build up advocates and activists, right? Because these are folks that are working in most direct relationship with people that have been harmed so they're also prepared to come down to the city council hearing and testify to show up when the people there's a race for local prosecutor and ask those questions and so i think it's really been to me those two things it's been crime going down and it's been this robust advocacy and activist infrastructure that grows in strength because every time somebody comes to a meeting like the meeting that you convene today there's more people there than were at the last one and that is telling people hey my cause is gaining in strength and is growing in power and so that makes them more inclined to show up the next time
0: yeah how did you um arrive at writing a book What's the journey to say? I'm gonna I'm gonna just double down on this. How did you uh, arrive at that? And and how did you arrive at the title? Hmm.
1: So the the book really grew out of the fact that I ha- I was obsessed with this question of how to explain the fact that when I was operating as a public defender in D.C. And 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 my office was an amazing, you know, it was a mostly African-American office, but pretty integrated, um, a really beautiful place to work. And as lawyers, we talked a lot, especially the black lawyers, we talked a lot about the fact that, like, we were doing this work as racial justice work mm-hmm. and we were walking into courtrooms and there were other black people who, didn't apparently agree with us (laughs) because some of the judges and some of the probation and parole and you know as a public defender you have to have a kind of a righteous anger right you have to you can't do the work you just have to believe in the righteousness of your cause so we didn't really stop to reflect on what were those people thinking right it was just they we were right and they were wrong but then when i left the office I did start to think more about the fact that like everybody else who was in that courtroom they have a story and they have a motivation and what are they thinking? And so I knew I wanted to write about that and I felt like the only way that I could tell the story in the complexity and the kind of nuance and the richness that I wanted that I could show a diversity of black perspectives on the page. Because that's what I hate about. You know, you go to a movie or television show and there'll be one black character and they're supposed to represent the black community. And again, growing up in Atlanta and then yeah. living in D.C., I knew that wasn't the truth. Because I was having arguments all the time with other people in my own community about what to do on all these issues. Imagine that. Right? <laughs> yeah. So I said, okay, it has to be a book. because it And then... The title came, I had the title early on, and for four years, I toyed with new titles. Uh, The the title is from a line in the introduction, because after I describe this scenario in court where the judge, African-American judge, locks up my African-American client and invokes the civil rights movement as a rationale for doing it, I have a question in there which says, how did this community end up locking up so many of its own? And a friend of mine, um, early on, when I was just sort of looking for a working title, um, a guy named Arthur Evancheck, who's in Cleveland, who's, who's, who's one of my dearest friends, he said, well, maybe that line should be the title, Locking Up Our Own. So I put it on there as a, just to have it. Mm-hmm. And some people loved it and some people hated it. <laughs> And everyone who hated it, I was like, give me new, give me suggestions, you know, and Mm -hmm. I must have wrestled with 20, 30, 40 other suggestions and and everything else ended up for me being not quite as good. So even though um, I always had mixed feelings about it, in a sense, I I felt like it was the best title that I could come up with, which is, I think for a lot of authors, you know, some people just fall in love with their title. Sure. Um, but other people end up having a title where they say, Well, it's the best one. I, it's the best I could do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope it's good enough. Well, man, it's provocative. Oh. Um, you know, as I was reading
0: through the book, and you think about um, the efforts that you have and this whole intent and impact, right? And I think about the work that. We're trying to drive and saying, you know, please don't let me be in this book later. <laughs> I do not <laughs> want to be in any book called Locking Up My Own or any of that. You <laughs> <We> don't <laughs> want to be on. in the sequel, no. So I need I need to have the right filters so that we know we're not making decisions that continues the harm that's been done on community. Hmm. Um, you know, and the other thing that we we talked about in the book, and I think that probably. Um, is demonstrating the story that you shared about being in the courtroom with other Black folks that had, you know, a different point of view than you on it. Um, is this idea of going back to the civil rights movement, and you know, we have this, um, this sort of vision of everyone getting along, and mm. even now I hear we need to have this unified Black agenda or this unified community agenda, or can we all disagree to this one thing and move forward? Mm. And you know, I wonder sometimes how that plays for the folks that are um, maybe the outliers, the ones that are, are maybe risking um, a little bit more perhaps or being more out front on issues that are less popular, hmm. but nonetheless really um, maybe are in the in the right vein towards justice. Hmm. Um, and I know that you have um, some thinking about that, but you know everyone didn't love Martin Luther King, right, right.
1: No, they didn't. And that's I think one of the great great myths of and destructive myths of the history of the civil rights movement that my dad was always super clear with me on in terms of explaining to me on how unpopular they were, how few in number they were, how um hard and um unrewarded and un um Uh, and just unpopular their their, their work was and Martin Luther King is the best example of it because he is now such a national hero and you know if you turn on television you know Black History Month there's probably going to be a Coca-Cola commercial with Martin Luther King speaking at the March on Washington but my dad's point is that both Martin Luther King and the March on Washington were unpopular when they happened and what that tells us I think is that We have to be um, a little bit like that public defender mentality I mentioned to you, which is that we have to be righteous and we have to believe in um, our cause. We we that doesn't mean don't be open minded. It doesn't mean don't listen. In particular, we have to listen to. Um, The communities and individuals who have been most directly affected, the families that are in justice involved, people who have been or are incarcerated or have that convict or felon label um, following them in life. Yes, Um, but um, it means that we can't be dismayed or dissuaded when we call a meeting and there's not that many people there. And we have to know that we are gonna build on that and keep building on that, um, and that's the only way that it's the only way that transformative change has ever happened. Because by definition, transformative change is going to be unpopular because it is transformative, mm-hmm. and most people don't want to be transformed. <laughs> right, right. I. Um...
0: So, okay, so here's some other things that I've kind of made up in my head about you and your family. And one of them is that John Lewis was regularly in your living room. <laughs> and um, I, I, like, just love that man and his courage, and um, am inspired by the number of people in that were young people in the movement that have stayed so consistent and so dogged on the issues relative to civil rights. And, um, so tell me, please, that he was in your in your living room.
1: He was not regularly in our living no, room, but his okay. spirit was. Okay. Um, so um, uh, yes, he is as much of an inspiration to me as he is um, to you. But I don't have any no uh, good great John Lewis. John Lewis stories that I can share. I'm sorry.
0: And how about anything for our dear representative, Elijah Cummings? Yeah.
1: I met him once. But he, I didn't know him again in that way, you know, in terms of being uh, as a child. I think a part of it was, you know, I grew up with my mom and not yeah. with my dad, mm-hmm. um, but um, and my dad was more connected, I think, with 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 some of those folks. Um, but um, you know, he's he is a hero. He's a fighter. He stood up for his city. He stood up for his people. Um, he was somebody who kind of grew and changed with the times and was open to absorbing new information, right. And, um, was never not progressive on criminal justice per se, but became, you know, more so. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, he obviously stood up to the president on behalf of Baltimore very recently. And I think it's significant that, um, you know, he's the chair of the oversight committee and, That work, I think the work that they're doing right now to oversee the current administration and to my mind, it's admitted lawlessness um, is uh, is absolutely um, essential and critical. And I think that um, I think that they're going to go forward um, inspired by by his life and his lessons and his history. And I certainly know that I am.
0: Yeah. I know his line where he talks about I grew up where the wire was filmed, <laughs> right? Like yeah. it
1: just really just um,
0: puts the the period on the point. Yeah. Um, how important is it to have representation in this work from people that have lived the experience? Like, you know, sometimes I, I think that we um, collectively like the idea of it. And I find that we very seldom actually um, embed people with that lived experience. Um, And value their
1: expertise in the same way I think you're right I think it's I think it's uh, I think it's essential But not sufficient So um, I think it's Not sufficient For the reasons that We've sort of made some reference to In terms of, of the book Like I don't think that Bringing more black police officers Onto a police force Is sufficient to change how that police force behaves. Um, But I do think it's necessary um, that in every position of power and authority, whether it's the uh, government or philanthropy or academia or law enforcement or civil service, you name it, um, I think that um, we have to be aggressive and intentional about bringing in a diverse range of of perspectives and experience, and in particular, which is, I think, what you were asking in your question, in the space of reforming and transforming the criminal legal system, we have to be uh, absolutely committed to bringing in as many people from the neighborhood where The Wire was filmed, mm-hmm. and as part of that, people who were directly victimized by the violence and or the incarceration or both. And so that means um, community members who, people who have been uh, locked up, people who have been arrested, people who have been incarcerated, um, that uh, they need to play leadership roles um, in, in the movement. It can't be a movement that talks about people um, sure. without having them um, in direct uh, positions of power and authority, and mm-hmm. it can't just be the like community outreach position. Right. You know, it also has to be embedded in the leadership of the organization.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you say more about why um, bringing in more black officers into uh, the police department won't necessarily? I think that that we sometimes have trouble making distinction between the people and the system.
1: Right. Well.
0: And certainly we value it, but right. that there, there's some pretty seeped yes practices I mean, and policies.
1: Yeah. There's you know, there's something about policing that trips us up. Like if I were to tell you, does more does hiring more black firefighters gonna change the way the fire department fights fires? I think your first reaction would be probably not. And Now, I still think it's important to hire more black firefighters, even Mm -hmm. if they... Now, policing is, of course, different because the function that we give them um, assumes maybe some level, greater level of of understanding, connection, intimacy with the people that they're... You know, the thing they're doing isn't like this fire that I'm going to go like spray water on, right? So I'm not trying to say it's exactly the same. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the reason why the... Kind of analogy is useful is it reminds us that there are systems and approaches and structures that are going to exist regardless of the people who populate them. And so while I think hiring more black officers and promoting more black officers is essential both from a reparation standpoint because people deserve the opportunity to have good jobs um, and also potentially from a change standpoint, but only if it's also accompanied by other measures, by changes in training and changes in oversight. I mean, think about, you know, uh, DeRay McKesson talks about this all the time. He talks about how um, if your punishment was to go to training, would it change your behavior, right? But that's what we do with, police officers typically who uh, break rules, sometimes who break the law, is this non-punishment of, well, we'll give you some more training. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we have to really think um, aggressively about the role that we have given, the function that we have assigned to police, and the tools that we have given them to execute on that function. And that those things have to be attacked at the same time as, and probably even um, first, but certainly at the same time as we think about bringing in. Uh, um, and the, the last thing I'll say is, the, one of the mistakes that I think that we fa- uh, face with black officers is we've just assumed that if they're black, then that we don't have to ask a set of questions about like their values and their belief systems and why they're doing the job and their commitment to the community. Like their blackness stands in for all that. Yeah. And my vision of police hiring is to get rid of the warrior model and to bring in more of a social work model. So I would, like, if I, I would like to see police departments going and trying to hire people from schools of social work and from schools of public health and bringing in people with those kind of values. But what I'm trying to say is if you're hiring a black officer, I want you to be asking them those same set of questions mm-hmm. and not just assume, oh, OK, well, you know, they'll be all right.
0: Right. Um, before we wrap. Do you have um, any advice for our community as we are moving forward in in our reform efforts
1: around bail reform? I think the main thing that I would say specifically on bail reform is that it's essential that whatever reforms get enacted, they can't be simply replacing one punitive, incarceration-oriented approach with another which I've seen happening now in some jurisdictions, is that they are, whether it's because they have a very expansive definition of preventive detention, Mm -hmm. so there's a whole bunch of kinds of offenses that get you locked up without bail, or because they're relying on these risk assessment tools that have all kinds of biases and prejudices baked into them and again, deny the individuality uh, of the person, that my fear is that if people go one of those two routes, then they end up enacting a reform and then two years, three years later, they see that there has been very little, if any, reduction in the number of people who are incarcerated pretrial. Because to me, that's the bottom line. The bottom line is, is our community reducing the number of people that is in jail? Not changing the label or the statutory designation designation of what got them in jail. Um, because what we've seen in jurisdictions that have reduced their jail population is that violence has continued to go down. So it's not a trade-off. In fact, I think it's the opposite because the research shows that being in jail, which is a toxic, brutal environment, is criminogenic, makes it more likely that you're gonna commit crime. So right now what we're doing is we're taking people who who might not be at a risk of creating crime. We're putting them in a scenario where they're being degraded and dehumanized and demoralized and severed from their family ties and severed from work. And then when they come out, they're more likely to commit a crime. And so so for me, the number one lesson is don't replace one punitive system with another. The second lesson is Keep your eye on the numbers. Keep your eye on the numbers and continue to drive the numbers down. People are going to tell you that if you do that, things will get less safe. They said that in D.C., when, when I was a public defender, there were 220 children locked up in D.C.'s juvenile jail. Last night, there were 26. And the city is safer than it was then. And so we have examples of this now where we've reduced the number of people locked up and crime has gone down and we constantly have to bring those out and put them in people's face so they understand that this isn't going to make them less safe.
0: Yeah. Um, if our listeners wanted to um, become more informed on this issue besides reading your book, Locking Up Our Own, um, what other uh, recommendations uh, would you have for them?
1: Absolutely. Well, they can follow me on Twitter I'm at Jen James, uh, James at oh man I forgot I even forgot my Twitter handle but uh I'm at James Foreman jr and the other thing um, that I would recommend that there's a couple books I would recommend people take a look at. Uh, Danielle Sered's book, Until We Reckon, is a fabulous book about restorative justice and the power of restorative justice. And it really shows an alternative because I think people are really desperate for alternatives. Um, I also really uh, am in love with a book called Becoming Miss Burton by Susan Burton. Again, another book which shows both the harshness and the wrongness of the system, but also shows a clear set of alternatives. Um, and both of the alternatives that Sered and Burton are talking about are community-based alternatives that uh, help to cr- to drive crime down and do it in a much more humane way. So, um, so I think I would tell mo- I, I would tell readers to uh, to start there, or listeners to start there.
0: Perfect. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
1: Thank you. It's been really, really a great time.
0: Yep. I will follow you on Twitter at James Foreman Jr. And um, I appreciate all that you do on behalf of all of us.
1: Thank you. You're
0: welcome. Please check out the Minneapolis Foundation website to find more episodes of this podcast, information on upcoming events, and for my book recommendations. Thank you to Weber Shadwick for their partnership and support in making this podcast come alive.